listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino Placerville, and this is the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Harmony Books of Nevada City, locally owned for over 25 years, next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street, open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5.30, Sundays 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. Also, Williams Stationery, a family-owned, full-service office supply store and delivery service. Also, retailing janitorial supplies and office furniture. Located at 112 West Main Street, downtown Grass Valley, since 1949. WilliamsAllValue.com After the NPR headlines and local weather, I'll be speaking with Lindsay Gordon. She's a GIS analyst for Nevada County, and we're going to be talking about the type of work that she does and how it applies to not only Nevada County, but to Grass Valley and Nevada City. Also, NPR is going to report on how the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau may be enhanced with Biden as president under Trump. And we have an edition of National Native News. Closing out today's newscast, we have a commentary with Mark Cooniver. At 6.30, we'll be broadcasting this week's edition of The Sages Among Us. And at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines followed by Regional Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. The nation has crossed yet another grim milestone in the battle against the coronavirus. More than 250,000 people have now died from COVID-19 in the U.S. That's according to Johns Hopkins University. NPR's Rob Stein is more. The new death toll means COVID has now killed about five times as many people in the United States as U.S. troops who were killed in 11 years of combat during the Vietnam War. Dr. Monica Gandhi is an infectious disease doctor at the University of California, San Francisco. It's a really somber day to reach the 250,000 mark. I think it's a very tragic and somber day. Doctors like Gandhi are pleading for Americans to wear masks and take other precautions to try to slow the spread of the virus, which is now spiraling out of control across the country. Rob Stein, NPR News. Concerned about the rising number of coronavirus cases, a group of Florida mayors are asking that state's governor for help. NPR's Greg Allen reports the mayors are asking Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to impose a statewide face mask covering mandate. As in the rest of the country, COVID-19 cases are rising in Florida. To encourage reopening of the economy, Governor DeSantis lifted all statewide coronavirus restrictions on businesses in September and prohibited cities and counties from enforcing local face mask mandates. Miami Beach Mayor Dan Gelber is one of several mayors asking the governor to reconsider that policy. We have seen an enormous surge. There's just no question about that. All these increases in positive are surely going to be followed by hospitalizations within a few weeks. The mayors are asking the governor to require face covering statewide and to allow them to enforce the CDC's social distancing guidelines at restaurants and retail establishments. 
Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. The Trump administration faces opposition in Congress to a major arms deal with the United Arab Emirates. The deal follows the UAE's decision to normalize ties with Israel, as NPR's Michelle Kalman explains. Three senators, Democrats Bob Menendez and Chris Murphy, along with Republican Rand Paul, are introducing resolutions of disapproval. They accuse the Trump administration of seeking to rush the sale of more than $23 billion in F-35 fighter aircraft, Reaper drones and munitions to the UAE without the proper input from Congress. The State Department formally notified Congress last week of the proposed sale. Senator Murphy says while he supports the normalization of relations between Israel and the UAE, nothing in that agreement, he says, requires the U.S. to flood the region with more weapons. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR. State officials in Georgia are staring down an 11.59 p.m. deadline tonight for finishing up a hand tally of votes in the presidential race. The recount of nearly 5 million votes stemming from an audit required by a new state law was not in response to any suspected problems with the results themselves. The law requires the audit be done before the results can be certified ahead of a Friday deadline. One of the artists most responsible for the unique sound of Michael Jackson's Thriller album has died. Bruce Swedeen was 86 years old when he died Monday. NPR's Anastasia Salukas reports he helped shape recordings by everyone from Count Basie to Barbara Streisand. Bruce Swedeen is best known for recording, mixing, and assisting in producing Thriller, one of the best-selling albums of all time. But Swedeen had a long career before that and after. When he was only 21, he was recording the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Swedeen's first big pop hit came in 1962 with Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons' Big Girls Don't Cry. His work with Michael Jackson and producer Quincy Jones netted him three Grammys. In paying tribute to him, Jones called his close friend a sonic genius. Anastasia Tsoukas, NPR News, New York. Something repeated the last big spike in coronavirus infections. Many retailers saying store shelves are being laid bare. Walmart said it's having trouble keeping up with demand for cleaning supplies. Supermarket chains Kroger and Publix both are limiting how much toilet paper and paper towel shoppers can buy. This is NPR. And taking a look at the weather, first here in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, looks like we'll have a low of 40 tonight, high of 54 tomorrow, mostly sunny, no rain through Monday, with highs in the upper 50s. In Sacramento, low of 42, high of 61, sunny through Monday, with highs in the low 60s. And in Truckee, low of 19 tonight, high of 44 tomorrow, partly cloudy tomorrow, mostly sunny through the weekend with highs in the mid-40s and no rain or snow in the forecast. I'm speaking with Lindsay Gordon. She is a GIS analyst with Nevada County. And uh, welcome to KVMR News, Lindsay. Thank you, Paul, and happy GIS Day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know this was GIS Day, but that's that's good to know. So, um, okay, very basic question. Uh, what is uh, GIS? I know it stands for Geographic Information System. So tell our listeners about this. 
Yeah, so GIS mm-hmm. deals with what we like to call the science of where, and primarily that means we are uh, we're map people. So as a GIS analyst, I'm a map person, and I make maps. I like to look at maps, and I deal with all the data that goes into maps, um, so what we call spatial data. Examples of spatial data uh, you're probably already familiar with, like elevation data is spatial data. Um, if you look at a map and you see cities and counties and towns on it, that's also spatial data. Roads, boundaries, um, land cover, all of those are examples of spatial data. And so with GIS, what we do is we create that data, we maintain it, um, we perform analyses with it, and we make maps from it. So what is the actual purpose of it in terms of it being a county function? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, you can do a lot of stuff with GIS. Um, with the county specifically, we maintain a lot of data like parcel data, uh, roads data. We maintain all of that for the different departments. We also make maps uh, both internally and for the public. And we also create a number of web applications, both uh, you know, for our county employees and for public citizens that I'm sure a couple people are probably familiar with. I'm I'm just assuming also you would probably uh, uh, provide like customized information for maybe um, a project that the county is doing so that it could be put up on the website. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, for example, I've worked with the county's Historical Landmarks Commission before, and they maintain a big database of um, historical landmarks across the county. And we actually mapped those. We mapped all of them, and we, uh, you know, put some descriptions and some extra information along with those different historical sites, and we put that online. So if you're a citizen of Nevada County and you want to learn more about the historical landmarks in our area, we have an app where you can go explore virtually all of these different places. What are some of the other projects that you've worked on this year? So, yeah, this has been a kind of a crazy year. <laughs> um, You know, one of the projects, one of the bigger projects that I've helped work on, along with the other GIS folks at the county, is uh, the Ready Nevada County Dashboard, actually, which I think hopefully a number of listeners are familiar with. Uh, We launched that this year and, of course, ended up using it when we had the Jones fire in August. But uh, that would be a great example of GIS. So the whole application, you know, there's a mapping component. During the Jones fire, we mapped all of the evacuation zones and the fire perimeter. That would be our mapping component, but all of the other information on there, too, is uh, GIS-based. So that was one big one. Another one that people are probably familiar with is the coronavirus dashboard. So if you go to that coronavirus dashboard every day to check the county's numbers, that's actually a GIS dashboard. And, you know, mapping takes a little bit of a backseat in that one because we're mostly focused about case numbers and charts and graphs, but we do have maps on there as well of cases by zip code and cases by county, and uh, that's a pretty big one that I know a lot of folks in the county use on a regular basis, especially now as uh, cases are climbing up. How many analysts does the county have that do the type of work that you do? So we have three dedicated GIS analysts. There's myself and another analyst, Alex Bryant, who do general GIS mapping. And we also have a third analyst who focuses exclusively on maintaining the county's parcels um, and keeping those maps up to date. Any special projects uh, that happen annually that are going to be happening in the next uh, few months? 
you know, nothing that I can really see coming down the pipeline. We're always working on new things. Um, you know, we're actually in the process of upgrading our entire county's GIS system right now, so we're hoping that'll be done soon. Um, but, you know, just maintaining the regular GIS services that we continue to offer. Um, you know, we have our parcel data. We have a lot, a lot of different GIS data sets available online through the county's open data portal. And we also have the My Neighborhood mapping application, which I know a number of citizens use. And, you know, if you're a citizen of the county and you want to do a little bit of GIS yourself and make a map, explore the data, you can go to our My, My Neighborhood application um, and check that out. So as I see it, uh, as a, a person that uh, this is new information for me, you're involved in kind of real nuts and bolts type of uh, things for the county in terms of presentations that are made to the public. Yeah, I'd say we are. Um, you know, the GIS department, we're often the ones kind of uh, pulling the levers and pushing the buttons and getting the data together. But all of the work that we do is um, usually in collaboration with other departments and other groups around the county, um, whether that's a county department or an external organization. Uh, so, you know, working with public health on the coronavirus dashboard, working with the Office of Emergency Services for the Ready Nevada County dashboard. Um, we do get into the weeds quite a bit, and I won't bore you with any of that, um, but it's nice to be able to really collaborate and work uh, together with so many different groups and stakeholders. Do you work with uh, the cities at all, Grass Valley and Nevada City? Yeah, uh, occasionally we work with the cities as well as the town of Truckee. We like to, uh, you know, facilitate data sharing with them. We also work with, um, you know, some other districts. We work with NID, um, share data with them as well, um, just to make sure everybody's on the same page and, and, you know, coordinating appropriately. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for informing us about uh, GIS and the type of work you do for the county. And um, anyway, thanks for uh, speaking with KVMR. Thank you very much, Paul. It was a pleasure. Next up, this special report from NPR. Millions of Americans are in desperate financial straits, which leaves them more vulnerable to predatory lenders. There is a federal agency that's supposed to protect people from that sort of thing, but critics say the Trump administration has blocked it from doing its job. As NPR's Chris Arnold reports, that is about to change. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is created after the last financial crisis to be a tough cop on the beat, making sure that people don't get taken advantage of by lenders or debt collectors or other companies. It's returned billions of dollars to people who've been harmed by financial firms. Deepak Gupta is a former top enforcement lawyer at the Bureau. This agency was designed to be a watchdog, and that mission is more important than ever. But under the Trump administration, basically this watchdog had its teeth removed. Trump put one of the bureau's fiercest Republican critics in charge of running it, Mick Mulvaney. As a congressman, Mulvaney called the bureau a joke. A joke, and that's what the CFPB really has been in a sick, sad kind of way. Some of us like to get rid of it. Under Mulvaney and his successor, the number of enforcement cases fell sharply. By one count, the money the Bureau returns to consumers fell by 96 percent. 
But in its zeal to weaken the agency, the Trump administration backed a lawsuit calling the bureau unconstitutional, in part because its director had too much power and couldn't be removed by the president. The case eventually went all the way to the Supreme Court. And just this past summer, the court said, yes, the president could fire the director. But by then, Trump's director was already in place, so the whole thing kind of backfired. And the irony of that is that now, on day one, President Biden will be able to name his own director, someone who is much more committed to the mission that the agency has to look out for American consumers. And if it hadn't been for that lawsuit, Biden would have been stuck with Trump's appointee for years to come. Meanwhile, Gupta says there's a lot to be done. Just one example, millions of American homeowners have been able to skip mortgage payments if they lost income during the pandemic. And lenders are not supposed to stick those people with unaffordable repayment plans. The CFPB can make sure that banks and financial companies are actually following those rules. Also, the pandemic recession has hit many lower-income communities hardest. RSLE Panameño is with the Center for Responsible Lending. She says these are the places where people are more likely to get into trouble borrowing from high-interest rate payday lenders. They are highly concentrated in communities of color, Black neighborhoods, Latino neighborhoods. The Trump administration weakened a rule that aimed to protect people who get payday loans. Panameño hopes the bureau can strengthen that rule. But she says in the meantime, it can still be policing deceptive practices, not just by payday lenders, but online lenders and auto title lenders. They have people put their vehicle up as collateral. For a certain type of car title loans, 20% of borrowers end up in repossession, losing their car, truck. For their part, financial firms don't want the agency under Biden to be too aggressive. Mary Jackson is the CEO of the industry group, the Online Lenders Alliance. She says too much regulation can prevent people from borrowing money when they need it. It's really important for everyday working people to have access to capital and access to credit so they can get their car repaired, so they can keep their lights on, so that they can take care of their children. And it really is up to the government to make sure they strike that balance in their policies. Still, there's been a sharp increase in complaints to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau during the pandemic. So Deepak Gupta, the former bureau attorney, he's looking forward to the watchdog getting its teeth back. Chris Arnold, NPR News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Northern Cheyenne Tribe in southeast Montana inaugurated its newly elected officials Tuesday, which includes a record number of female leaders. Yellowstone Public Radio's Caitlin Nicholas reports from Lame Deer. The Northern Cheyenne Tribe made history this month when tribal members elected all women to the positions of tribal president, vice president, and into each of the five open seats on the tribal council. After prayers and speeches, each woman was sworn into office while hundreds watched from socially distanced chairs, cars in the parking lot, and online. And I will promote, I will promote, and protect, and protect the best interests, the best interests of the Northern Cheyenne tribe. Donna Fisher, the, the new president of Northern Cheyenne, says she's anxious to get to work. We as women, we will work together to get things, we won't always be on the same page, but we will work together to get things done. And this is what the people have voted 
us in there for. There are now seven women serving on the 10-seat council. I'm Caitlin Nicholas. Leaders of the Yorok and Karuk tribes, the states of California and Oregon, and a dam owner announced an agreement Tuesday to provide additional resources and support to advance salmon restoration. The project addresses declines in fish populations and improves river health. The agreement with the tribe states, Pacific Corps, and the Klamath River Renewal Corporation describes how the parties will implement a 2016 agreement, which sets terms for the removal of four dams on the Klamath River. Karuk Chairman Buster Atterbury. I'm looking forward very much to um, having the best day as chairman of the Karuk tribe when I can say that we have restored those fish and that we can uh, enjoy those bonding times with our uh, children when we can go to the river and and we can uh, put food on the table together. Plans include navigating the final regulatory approvals to allow the project to begin in 2022 with dam removal in 2023. Federal approval is still needed. The Rapid City Council has approved a resolution to resolve a land dispute over more than 1,000 acres on the west side of the city, an old Indian boarding school. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Richard Tubles reports. The council approved the historic resolution with a 9-to-1 vote. It's a step to rectify history and acknowledge the shameful legacy of the Rapid City Indian Boarding School. There was very little public comment on Monday's council meeting. One person did not support the resolution, saying it wasn't clear who represents the Native community in this effort. Troy Fairbanks, on the other hand, agreed that the city council should approve the resolution on principle alone. I want to commend you, each and every one of you, for actually taking a look at what is right through city council. The only ones that have ever stood up for us, even even thought about talking about the Native Indian community. That is tremendous. An initial vote on the resolution was tabled two weeks ago. Council members had doubts and questions about it. Before their vote on Monday, City Attorney Joel Landine said the resolution creates a path to resolve the underlying issues. This is not legally binding. It is an intent to come up with hopefully an agreement that when we enter into it will be legally binding. It outlines the parameters broadly, but yeah, we will need to come back with a specific plan. The Bureau of Indian Affairs, which operates under the Department of Interior, has the final decision on these parcels of land. The BIA wants the Rapid City Native American community to work with the city to move forward. I'm Richard Tubles. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Association of American Indian Physicians and the SAMHSA-sponsored Opioid Response Network working across the nation to address the opioid crisis in tribal communities. Information and support at aaip.org. Native Teaching Aids collaborates with tribes to create games and apps which focus on language, culture, and history. Native Teaching Aids can create fun, engaging materials for your community. Further information and online store at nativeteachingaids.com who support this show.
You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, and this is the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. KVMR's news program airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. Coming up this evening at 6.30, we have this week's edition of The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out today's newscast, we have Mark Cunaberti with a commentary. Welcome to another edition of Your Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. What will a Biden market look like and how might it be different had Trump been reelected? There would likely be many similarities and differences no matter which way it went. Both men believed in heavy spending and Trump utilized the full power of the federal printing press and the debt markets during his administration. The U.S. deficit skyrocketed under Trump even before COVID-19 hit. COVID only exasperated the situation and increased the spending. Under Biden, it is assumed that spending will only accelerate. Trump broke many spending records. Biden may blow those sky high addressing COVID and the ailing economy with massive new programs. Should COVID continue to spread ferociously as it has been, the printing presses at the Federal Reserve will likely be on steroids. As a general rule, historically, Democrats advocate a looser fiscal policy than Republicans. In recent decades, however, both parties seem to have little concern about opening up the government checkbook. Two mechanisms the government can fund their spending and therefore accomplish economic stimulus is through fiscal and monetary policy. Fiscal policy comes directly from the government in the way of tax regulations and spending programs like direct stimulus payments, infrastructure, and other social assistance mechanisms. Monetary funding is accomplished by the Federal Reserve, a private corporation run by a government agency called the Board of directors, and they accomplish their spending through interest rate manipulation, the debt markets, easing reserve requirements on the banking institution, and other systemic operations that center around debt and outright currency creation and application. Under Biden, both monetary and fiscal policy is expected to accelerate. With a COVID-ailing economy and no end in sight to the shutdowns and scalebacks, many businesses and individuals alike are bleeding red. Only massive amounts of government assistance will provide any semblance of normalcy to our economy. Whether amassing massive deficits is the long-term solution for a sound economy is a story for another day. Sectors likely to benefit from Biden are anyone's guess, but there are some common beliefs among analysts as to where the money will go. Many believe government-sponsored infrastructure programs will offer the job creation benefits so badly needed. Companies tied to construction and all its related conduits may be considered. Healthcare may benefit from a renewed sense of urgency to fix the existing problems with the Affordable Health Care Act and those consumers stuck in between the public and private options. Tariffs on foreign goods are expected to be rolled back under Biden, and foreign markets are already reacting to this assumption. Bonds, which are just another word for debt, may sell off should the stock market scream upwards as investors opt for higher returns from stock growth in a rising market. There will also be massive amount of debt that the U.S. will need to sell to fund its activities. More debt for sale also means higher interest rates. Subsequently, bonds may react negatively and sell off as bond prices and interest rates move opposite of each other. 
Green energy may do well under a Biden administration, as he has indicated strong support for addressing climate change. Hydrocarbon endeavors may or may not suffer, as increased demand from spending projects and increased activity may partially offset the move to alternative energy. Sectors that might suffer under Biden include financials, as he attempts to placate constituents and their disdain for big banking. There is also congressional headhunting taking place, targeted towards the largest corporate players, both in social media, high-tech, and online retailing, although many believe it's mostly rhetoric. Any serious talk about breaking up the largest of the large conglomerates will likely put pressure on these companies' stock. Many cross-currents will be at work as the new president takes office. Predicting anything for certain is a fool's game. Should COVID continue its rise in infections, further shutdowns could slow or halt economic improvement. No matter which way it goes, massive amounts are likely destined to be showered down on the public and private economies. A typical outcome of that is inflation. And should inflation rear its ugly head, the U.S. dollar may fall, and hedges like precious metals and other historical inflation shelters may see their day in the sun. In conclusion, if we have learned anything in the year 2020, it's that anything can happen. And in 2020, it has. Keep in mind, whenever we think we know what the markets will do, it is famous for not cooperating. That does it for today's Money Matters. Remember, opinions expressed here are my opinions only and do not reflect those of any bank or investment advisory firm. This station and staff members are underwriters. Nothing here should be construed as individual investment advice. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California Insurance License OL34249. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Thanks for listening. Well, that's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's evening news airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. Coming up next, we have this week's edition of The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. If you've heard something on this newscast you'd like to hear again, you can go to our website at kvmr.org where you can download audio or listen on demand. That's it for tonight, folks. Have a great evening.